In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul told the church that the law was their schoolmaster to bring them to Christ that they might be justified by faith. He would go on to mention that we are no longer under a schoolmaster because we have come to faith and are now in Christ and thus Abraham's seed. If the function of the law is to bring us to Christ and we have come to Christ, then understandably, the law has ceased to function. It no longer needs to function in its given role in our lives. But what does it mean now that we are no longer under the law? Where are we now? What are the implications of that freedom? When the only life one has known is a life where the law condemns and sin abounds, what does it mean to live a life where the law is powerless and grace abounds? How are we to understand the dynamics of our freedom in Christ as an heir of God? We explore this a little bit deeper today from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1-11. through 11. And let me just preface this sermon by saying that this passage as a whole is a difficult one to interpret. And I don't claim necessarily that I've got it all right. I'm going to give you what I believe the Bible is saying, but there's going to be some ambiguity here. Not just as we look at the King James or as we look at the English, but as we look at the Greek, there's some ambiguity here. And I believe that the pronouns being used will, will help us gain clarity so I feel confident in what I'm teaching, but I can't confidently say that, another that any other interpretation is wrong because there's some ambiguity here. So uh, we're going to look at this this evening. I'll tell you why I think what I think and why I believe what I believe about what it's saying. We'll again consider the deep necessity of fostering a perspective whereby we live a life that is free from the practical implications of the law, free from the emotional feelings of indebtedness to the law as well. So let's take a look together and let's, let's read all 11 verses and then we'll dig in a little bit. Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature were no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Now, in verse 1 and 2, we see the, this statement as we, we jump back into the text and dig in a little bit. He says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, 
though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. In the final verses of Galatians 3, recall, Paul finished by stating that in Christ, there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, between the bond and the free, between the male and the female. And we preached that message last week, and it was called the divine solution to isms, right? Racism, sexism, they're all solved in the scriptures with the reality that there is only one race, the human race. That, there, that, that there's, we're all packaged a little bit different, but we're all of one blood. And that in Christ, when you've accepted Christ, spiritually speaking, those distinctions melt away. So no man or woman or child stands before God at a disadvantage because of their, their ethnicity or their um, gender or their economic or social class. None of that matters in Christ, spiritually speaking. But today, Paul is going to take a step back and consider the different beginnings of the Jew and the Gentile. Because remember, the Jew and the Gentile did start out very differently, did they not? God did distinguish in the Old Testament between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew was given the law and the provinces and the covenants. The Gentile did not have the law and the promises and the covenants. So the Jews did have this very particular privilege before the Lord. The child of Israel, pre-Christ, was the elect of God. Not unto salvation, right? That's not what election is speaking of, but unto the purpose of reflecting God to the world, of aligning themselves with God's law so that they could show the world what it meant to align with God's law and the blessings that would come from it. They were heirs to the kingdom. They were heirs to the promises. The Gentile pre-Christ was the servant of sin through the wickedness of the world. They were serving idols and false gods and, and full of paganism. And so Paul introduces two characters here in verse 1. He introduces the heir and he introduces the servant. And he says that the heir and the servant are no different as children. The child heir and the child servant really aren't very distinguished. They are both under the authority of others, not their own. They both have responsibilities. They both have expectations placed upon them. They both have no power to command everything. Now, the heir may be a one-day heir, but as a child, he's under tutors and governors. He has authority. He doesn't have any of the privileges of his father. He, he is still learning. He's still growing. He's still under authority. The Jew was under the tutor of the law, as Paul has just described. The Gentile was under the bondage of idolatry. So the child heir is the Jew who's under the tutor of the law. The child servant is the Gentile who is under the bondage, he's the slave, under the bondage of idolatry. Both, however, were under the elements of the world. Both are sinners. And we'll see this as we continue in the text. So while the child heir has been promised eventual lordship over all that is his father's, he finds himself under authority until such time as the father deems fit. Just as the child servant is under authority. Indeed, as children, there is no difference between their present circumstances, only their future prospects. And Paul says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of 
the world. Now, the we that Paul speaks of, and this is where things get tricky, because the way I just preached to you verses 1 and 2 was not how I was thinking about the passage when I began studying it. I was thinking about um, not, not really worrying about the servant, just talking about the heir, and, and then the believers being the heir, and, and, and um, even before they accepted Christ, we, we've talked before about the understanding of, of what it means that God foreknew that we'd be saved but didn't inherently predestinate that we'd be saved. And that's where we stand on the position of predestination, that the believer is predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ, not to be saved, and that uh, yet still God foreknew. And I was thinking along those lines. But the pronoun usage that Paul has in these verses, he switches pronouns here, and it made me think differently. So, so stick with me on this and what I believe the text is saying. So Paul says, even so we, and he uses this pronoun we, which means it's him and someone else. And I initially thought this was him and those he was writing to, but I don't necessarily believe that anymore. I believe that he's likely speaking of the Jewish world, that he's saying we as Jews uh, were, when we were children, were under bondage. So he's connecting the heir. The heir is under tutors and governors the same way the servant is under authorities. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And he could implicit or, uh, implicitly be, be bringing in the church or the idea of those who, who um, from the Gentile world have been saved. It could extend to all men through salvation. Both Jew and Gentile live the beginning of their days under the bondage of the elements of the world, under the spiritual bondage of sin. And that word elements literally means the fundamental principles of the world. What are these fundamental principles? Well, if we look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, John writes this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So this, I believe, is a, a good summary of the elements of the world, the fundamental principles of the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. These covetous desires, pride. The fundamental principles that comprise the world. And Paul says, these are, or John says, these are not from the Father, but are of the world. They are rooted in the system of the sinful world. And so Paul, in, in verse 3, says, even so we, when we were children, were under bondage to the elements of the world. And I believe um, he, he's going to be contrasting here between Jew and Gentile, and he's speaking of the Jewish world, that even though they had the law, and the Gentile world did not have the law, they were both in bondage to the elements of the world. They were both under sin. And this is what we learned in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. Just a few verses ago, Paul says, The Scriptures hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So whether you were Jew or Gentile, of course, all are one in Christ, but, pre but outside of Christ, everyone was still in bondage to the world, whether you had the law or didn't have the law. The difference being that the Jew was under the schoolmaster of the law, under tutors and governors. The Greek or Gentile world was caught in pagan idolatry. 
But then something happened. And look what he says here in verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now the scriptures tell us in the fullness of time, in God's time, and according to God's good pleasure, he sent his son to the earth. And Paul distinguishes this son to the Galatian readers in two impor- or three important ways. Excuse me. First, he was made of a woman. That he was human. 100% man. Second, that he was made under the law. That he came as a Jew, submitted to the law of Moses. And then that he came, third, for the purpose of redeeming those under the law. Now, if you were to think, who are those under the law? And we think about what the law is in Galatians, which is Judaizers, the Mosaic law. It's the Jewish people. The Jewish people were those under the law. And indeed, as we look at the Gospels, we find that Jesus Christ said, I came to those of Israel. I came to the lost sons of Israel, he would say. He, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came preaching to the Jews, repentance. We see him branch out a couple of times. He speaks to the Samaritan woman. He uh, speaks to uh, a centurion. And yet his ministry was Jewish focused. He came born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that, are under, that were under the law, that they, we, excuse me, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And I contend Paul is still speaking of the Jews here, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And Romans tells us that unto the Jews pertain the adoption, Paul would say in the book of Romans. And he says that specifically of the Jewish people, unto them pertain the adoption. And so, as he has already presented that the Jews and the Gentiles are one in Christ, now he's showing the different ways that we did indeed get there, that the Jews came under the law, the schoolmaster of the law, that God sent his son Jesus Christ to redeem them that were under the law, that we, he says, might receive the adoption of sons. He came to the child heirs who were under the same bondage to the element of the world and under the tutor of the law. And this would be very important, would it not, to an audience struggling with Judaizers? That Jesus was 100% the Messiah, came born of a woman, that he came under the law, that Jesus came, submitted to the law, not to destroy the laws, he said. And in fact, we know this from Jesus' own words in Matthew 5.17, right? Think not that I am come to destroy the law, or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to complete the law. And to an audience that's struggling with the need for the law, this would be very important. He's not trying to say that Jesus wasn't a Jew. He's not trying to say that Jesus didn't regard the law. He came, he says, Paul says, Jesus came to redeem them under the law to bring them into the inheritance that he had promised to them. Jesus came as a Jewish man. He fulfilled the law by dying on the cross for the sins of the world, rising again in victory over death, redeeming those who are under the tutors and governors of the law, the child heirs, and bringing them into their full inheritance. But he didn't just redeem the child heirs, did he? He also redeemed the child servants. He also redeemed the child slaves. Notice the pronoun change. 
He says, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Verse 6. And because ye are sons, we just went from first person plural to second person plural. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, second person singular, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This is why I'm taking the interpretation I'm taking. Because all of a sudden, Paul has gone from we to you. He's making a distinction here between this group and this group. The we's and the you's. And as we see the presentation of the child servant and the child heir, it seems as though Paul is speaking of the Jew and the Gentile, the heir and the servant, the we and the you. We know that the group which was under the law was the Jews. We would understand thus that Paul mentions that the Jewish people did in fact have the expectation of an inheritance, an expectation which the, child, the, the, the Gentile world did not have. But when we see this pronoun change, the we to the you, most of you know in our King James Bibles, pronouns are delineated very specifically. In the first person, I, me, for the singular, we and our for the plural. In the second person, thee and thou for the singular, for the second person singular, you and your for the plural. And then, of course, in the third person, uh, he, she, it in the singular and they in the plural. The King James Bible is the only Bible that consistently distinguishes between the second person singular, you, thee, and the second person plural, you and your. I'm sorry, not you and thee. Thee, thou, in the singular, you and your in the plural. That's why the King James uses the these and the thous and the yous and the yours to know if you're speaking to one person or speaking to a multitude of people as you're giving the you, the second person. And so we are very thankful for that in, in our particular translation because it helps us see what's going on in the Greek without having to go to the Greek. Praise the Lord for that. We're thankful for that. We find both in this context, don't we? Paul went from saying we, first person plural, to you, first, second person plural. And so he, he somehow separated himself from this second group of people he's talking about. Why did he do that? Well, if he's speaking of the difference between the Jew and the Gentile and he's writing to the Galatian believers, they're Gentiles. And he's writing to them about why they don't need to be submitted to the law of the Jews and why they don't need to come into a Jewish context in order to be right with God. And so he goes from we to you and then he makes it very personal in the next verse and he says, wherefore, thou... All of a sudden, he's speaking to each of them individually. Second person singular, right? He has just switched to thou, each one of you who are believers. And it's beautiful to be able to see all of that happening. So we understand in this, in this context that Paul is distinguishing between himself as a representative of the Jews under the law to the Galatians who are Greeks who are not under the law. He makes it clear that they have been ushered into the same heirship by adoption. The adoption that pertained unto the Jews has been extended to the Gentiles. The adoption that pertained unto the child heir has also been extended to the child servant. 
the one that, that Jesus Christ came to redeem them that were under the law, and as this beautiful uh, included bonus, He redeemed them that were outside of the law. And that's what we see here. Thou art no more a servant, he says. He's not speaking to his readers as if they were child heirs. That word servant here, thou art no more a servant, it's the same word that was used in verse 1 when he says an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a servant. And he tells them, thou art no more a servant. Not an heir or a child heir. Thou art no more a servant. Again, connecting the Gentile world to the idea of the servitude. And he says, you're no longer a servant. You are a son. Why? Those readers aren't Jews. They're Gentiles. They are not those for the past several thousand years who have received the law and the ministry of the prophets. Jesus came to save the world, but he came to save the Jews first, as would the apostles, right? When Paul would go into a new city, he'd start in the synagogue. When they kicked him out, inevitably, uh, he would go to the Gentile world. Jesus Christ said, go ye into all the world. And, and he, he says, go to Jerusalem and, and Judea and, and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. But he said to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, not in that passage. But he, that's what he expected. That's what he preached. Go to the Jews, then go to the Gentiles. By switching to the second person, first plural, then singular, Paul shows that he's differentiating the pre-Christ conditions of the Jews and pre-Christ condition of the Gentiles but now that they have each accepted Christ as their Savior by believing on His name, they have both graduated into sonship. A position of realizing the inheritance that, that was secured through Christ. So that whether as an unbelieving man, you're a Jew, the child heir under the tutor of the law, or a Gentile, the child servant under the bondage of idolatry, both are ushered by Jesus Christ into the same family, into the same position, into the same privileges, into the same sonship as heirs of God through Christ. Now, the object of all of this teaching is to bring us to this conclusion that every believer, whether Jew or Gentile, has been removed from the elements of the world under which they were bound and under which they operated. We have been removed from our bondage to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The Jews have been removed from the schoolmaster of the law and the conditions of self-righteousness in order to please God. The Gentiles... Well, we'll look at what Paul says to the Gentile believers and notice... As we read these verses, the pronoun is still second person plural. Ye, you. He says this in verses 8 and 9. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Idols, right? But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Paul says that these Gentile believers, when they got saved, were delivered from their previous bondage to service and worship of false gods, those which were by nature no gods. And now they have been freed from the bondage of their servitude and have been made heirs of God in Christ and have been adopted into the family of God and are trying to submit themselves now, however, to the schoolmaster, to the same in capable tutor 
that the child heir graduates from when he accepts Christ. And it's like you, you were the servant and you were under the bondage and the servitude of, of idols and then you have been made a full son with all of the privileges of sonship and you go and you submit yourself to the tutors and to the governors of the child heir. You don't need them. You're, you're past them. You have been brought into full sonship, full heirship. Quite literally, why did they desire to be under the bondage of the law and its requirements when you just got out of bondage? And you say, well, what is the bondage of the law? We've learned already that the law is not a bad thing, right? It's holy, it's right, it's good, it's spiritual. But the bondage that the law engendered was the bondage of self-righteousness. That in order to truly fulfill the law, you had to keep it in all points. And no one can do that. No one can be righteous before God through the law. And so the law does nothing but engender in us bondage because it just shows us how far we fall short. And that's okay because Christ has made it up. Christ has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. But, he's, but, but to these Gentile believers, he says, look, you just got out of bondage and now you're throwing yourself back under this obligation, the guilt of, of self-righteous ineptitude. You can't, you can't get there. And it's important that we make a distinction here that the law is not wrong, but that the weak and beggarly elements he's talking about here is the self-righteousness required in the law in order to be right with God. Attempting to please the true and living God by my own capacity to keep the law is nothing but bondage because I can't do it. I fall short. Both are bondage. Both leave men short when it comes to getting to God. So we finish our inspection of the text together with Paul expressing his fear. In verses 10 and 11, he says, you observe days, months, times, and years. He says, I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Paul says that they are careful to observe days, months, times. This would have been the, the idea of the Sabbath days, right? And then the months would have been the feasts and the times would have been various um, other observances, perhaps the yearly feasts. As we see that word times, oftentimes speak of a year. In the book of Revelation, we see a time, time, times, and half a time being three and a half years. So the times is probably years. So he says you observe days or festivals, of days, which would be the Sabbath, months, which would be the monthly religious festivals of uh, Feast of Tabernacles and such, and then the yearly, the, the, the times, the yearly ones, which of course would be the Day of Atonement and, and such like that. And so um, that's what he's saying. You're observing these things now when you think that if you're not observing these properly, that you are falling short of God. And he says, I'm afraid of you. Now this does not mean that he is fearful of them He's fearful for them is really what this is. I'm afraid on your behalf that all of the effort I put into teaching you the gospel has been lost. Now let's clarify what this would mean. Paul is not saying, I'm afraid you have lost your salvation. We know that the Bible can't t teaches that, that that is not a possibility, that they who are in Christ are placed into Christ that no man can pluck us out of our Father's hand, that we are secure in Christ when we have accepted Christ. What Paul is saying is that he is afraid that all of the doctrine he has taught them has been muddied. 
And we've talked about what this would do already. This would not mean that those who had accepted Christ would lose their salvation. But because they have now fallen into a false gospel, their children and all who they can possibly influence around the communities in which they lived, all that they could influence in the cities of Galatia would be falling into a false assurance, a false gospel, that the false gospel would be pervasive, not the true gospel, because they don't have the true gospel. And so it would affect the region far more, we would say, on a, for salvation than it would affect the individuals who had already been saved. And yet, they're going, not only are they going to spread this false gospel, but it's also going to affect the way they live their lives as Christians. And Paul's afraid for them. He's afraid that they're going to be living the rest of their lives, believer or not, in the bondage of this law that Christ has already fulfilled. And that is his fear. We're going to pick up there next time and see what Paul has to say about that. We've spoken several times, however, of the concept of biblical adoption, and we need to lay, lay down a, 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 the principle of adoption before we apply together this evening. Adoption is a very important biblical concept that we need to seek to understand. When one is adopted, even today, he is legally taken out of a family to which he previously associated and is legally placed or associated with a new family. An adopted child immediately assumes all of the privileges and responsibilities of his new family and his new association. Biblically speaking, adoption speaks of the divine transaction that takes a person and places him into the family of God. In consistency with the illustration as Paul gives it, we see that the nation of Israel was and yet is intended to be the divine heirs of adoption. They are the ones that have been marked as having uh, the tutor and the governor that ought to bring them into heirship. All throughout the Old Testament, God promises a time when He would rule and reign over Israel in righteousness. We've discussed several times already throughout the epistle of Galatians why we believe God still has promises for the nation of Israel, even though the spiritual promises that God made to Abraham transcended the family of Israel and touch every believer today. And one of the concepts that we presented earlier was that of Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, which says this, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, filled with pride, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel, he says, shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. God says that the people of the nation of Israel, the child heirs, will come into their inheritance. Now, what is this not saying? This is not saying that every Jew that has ever lived is saved. That's, it's, this is not saying that. Every Jew that has lived and died has either died in Christ or outside of Christ and it's based upon whether or not they have chosen to put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But what these verses do say is that all Israel shall be saved. There's coming a day where the, the nation collective will put their faith and trust in Christ. Where each one of them will make the individual decision, but the nation will 
come to Christ as individuals, but the whole nation. And this will be at the end of the tribulation. The tribulation is the chastening that finally brings Israel to their knees so that when Christ comes, they will accept Him. And that's what God knew it would take because to this point, certainly, they have rejected Him. So there's coming a day, but what is stopping that? What is keeping Israel in blindness? Well, the fact that God still has a plan. So until the day that He enacts the tribulation... Israel will remain in blindness. God's not holding them in blindness. He's simply not bringing the chastening that he knows they need to bring them to their knees. So God is choosing until the day that every Gentile who will possibly accept Christ accepts him, he's choosing to allow Israel to remain in their blindness for our benefit so that those who are not Jews can come in. And when the fullness of the Gentile world comes in, when every person that will accept Christ does accept Christ according to God's foreknowledge, then God will initiate the tribulation which will bring about the chastening that will bring Israel to a place where they're prepared for their Messiah. And then all Israel will accept Him. And they, as the child heirs, will come into the inheritance just as we, the child servants. And so there is something planned for them. And God hasn't forgotten about them. And God hasn't just kicked them to the curb. They're on pause. They're on hold. God, and certainly any Jew that accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior will be ushered into sonship. But the nation as a whole is, in, is pending a time where they will finally yield to Christ and that will be after great chastening. And as we consider adoption, we need to understand it from two perspectives. We are what we would call adopted. But there's two different ways to look at adoption. There's positional adoption, and then there's the practical idea of adoption. Oftentimes in the Bible, we see guaranteed future events as if they were already a reality, though they are still future. Uh, We are called saved, the saved. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, even though much of what we are saved from, we haven't yet been saved from. We've been saved from the power of sin in our lives. We've been saved from the penalty of sin, which is effectively a future issue. But we certainly haven't yet been saved from the presence of sin, have we? The the, the sin is still reigning in our moral bodies, if we allow it. Sin is still present in our moral bodies, even if we're walking in the Spirit. Sin's still there, but we say we're saved. We're saved from sin. It's a future event, but it's so sure it's going to happen that we, we speak of it as if it's already happened. We call ourselves the redeemed, even though much that we are going to be redeemed from, we have yet to be redeemed from. And we call ourselves adopted. Though the adoption that is spoken of in Scripture is a yet future event. These two timetables do not contradict because of the faithfulness of God. Though the elements of our salvation and our redemption and our adoption are yet future events, they are, on assurances of the very Word of God and the character of God Himself who cannot lie, they are ours already. They're as good as ours. This is like the idea that uh, you have been promise something and, and uh, maybe you've been promised, you, you, you have someone and they tell you, I've got a thousand dollars 
with your name on it. And so you, you know that you've got that $1,000 coming and, and it's, it's, it's assured that it's going to come to you, but it just hasn't hit the bank yet. And so you begin to spend it, which may not be the wisest thing when you're talking about people, but the idea is that we know it's coming and God is the one who has promised us and said it's coming. And so we can live today in the reality of that which God has promised for us already. These events are so certain to happen within the scope of time that the Bible speaks to them as if they have already happened. And we call this positional truths or positional realities where we find that though practically speaking we haven't yet entered into everything that we've been promised, positionally we can already consider ourselves a child of God because the transaction is beyond certain it is absolutely guaranteed. Before I took the pastor position at Legacy Baptist Church, I had already been invited to come up and be the pastor. And so at my graduation, they asked, are you the pastor of a church? And I put, yes, I am the pastor of a church. And when I was announced at graduation for seminary, they called me Pastor Jamin Wickler. I had not yet assumed the position of pastor, and I would not for two whole days after graduation. But I had the position in hand. I had been promised the position. I was living out the reality of the promise that I had been given. I was calling myself a pastor, though I had not yet gotten to my flock. That's the idea. We call ourselves saved, redeemed, adopted, though some of those promises are yet future. You say, pastor, how do you know? How do you know that those are yet future? That hasn't actually happened yet. Because that's what Paul says in Romans 8.15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, he says, excuse me, not, it'll be the next verse. Leading up to that, <laughs> he says in Romans 8.15, ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Here we see a verse which very closely mirrors what we just read in Galatians verses, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. That we have received not the spirit of bondage or slavery to the world, but the spirit of adoption. Adoption is, the, the, the spirit of adoption is the Holy Spirit who indwells us at salvation. He's also called the earnest or the down payment of our inheritance. He's the seal. He's the thing that tells us that we have more coming. He's, he's the, the token that, that shows us that the promises that God has given to us are ours already. The word Abba in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word for father. And importantly, it's the one which J Jesus regularly used to invoke the, the father in his personal prayers to God while he was on this earth. He regularly called God Abba. And so we use the same word in reference to the father as Jesus does because we are co-heirs with him in Christ. But notice, this is where we get to it, Eight verses later, in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, Paul says this, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. In the same context as this concept of adoption, Paul tells us that though we are God's children and we have the spirit of adoption, and the spirit of adoption being that down payment, the 
earnest of our inheritance that reminds us that our inheritance is yet to come, the earnest of the blessings that reminds us that the blessings are yet to come, the earnest of our adoption that reminds us that, the, that we are adopted, that it's sure to come. He tells us that the true adoption is the day that our bodies are, are redeemed. The day that we receive our resurrected bodies is the day, the official day, the practical day of our adoption. So as far as time is concerned, practically speaking, our adoption will be at the moment of our resurrection. But on principle, we've already got the certificate that says you've been adopted. He's coming to get you. He'll be here soon. And that certificate is the Holy Spirit indwelling. That's what assures us. When you feel conviction for sin, when you see the fruit of the Spirit bear witness in your life, that's a testimony to the fact that you are a child of God. That's a testimony to the fact that without fail, God is coming for you and you'll receive all of the promises which He has made. The process now is a mere formality because it's already going to happen. Application, as we close, two points to make. Point number one, adoption means a new family in Christ. Adoption means a new family in Christ. Adoption takes front and center as we conclude or as we apply this evening. Our adoption is not something we, we regularly speak of as such. We go around speaking of ourselves as redeemed. We go around and speak of ourselves as saved. Maybe we use the word born again. I don't typically say, and I haven't typically heard people go around and say, I'm adopted. Uh, that would probably confuse people a little bit more, right? Because then they'd say, oh, who are your real parents? And that might usher in a great conversation. Maybe we should try it sometime. But that's not typically the word that we use when we're speaking of our salvation in Christ. Adoption means, first of all, however, that you are a part of a new family in Christ. Now, as I say that, I understand that the reactions to this concept could vary among listeners, maybe in person, maybe online. Some may think of family as a place of torment, abuse, conflict. Misery. Some may think of family as a place of peace, of rest, of love, and of comfort. For some, a new family sounds like a real blessing. For others, a new family may sound more like a chore. But rest assured, as we talk about a new family in Christ, it is the kind of family where you find peace, love, rest, and comfort. You find blessing. As you look into the New Testament, we don't regularly see the word family in regard to the church, but we do regularly see the terms brother and sister. Speaking not of those who have the same blood parents, but rather those who same this, share the same heritage of being a believer in Christ. This family, the church family, the Christ family, like any family, is designed to offer its members provision, protection, and purpose. And so it is with the family of Christ. We're called in Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens. We'll get there a couple months. We're called also in Galatians 6 to do good, especially to those that are of the household of faith. We're called members of the body of Christ in Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where each member has a unique and specific purpose as a functioning member to benefit the whole body. We're called in Ephesians 4 to be unified in Christ, maintaining a common focus 
as we serve God in various ways. We're called in Ephesians 4 to make increase and to edify one another in love. Now, while many of these charges find a closer resemblance to a body than to a family, they also bear a striking resemblance, do they not, to a functional family? That within the functional family, everyone has a purpose. Within a functional family, there's provision and protection and purpose. That within a functional family, we're to be building up one another and protecting one another and be unified in our, in our direction and we're to edify one another in love. That's a picture of a functional family. And this is the point. That when you enter the family of God, God intended for you to be surrounded by those who are like-minded, who are working for your best good in obedience to their Father. Everyone following in submission to their Father for the good of the whole family. So that Paul might pray as he does in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14-21, through 21, For this cause I bow my knees unto, fa- unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom he says it here, the only time in fact that he uses it, the whole family in heaven and earth is named that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And then He finishes saying, Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. This kind of blessing and peace and love and fullness of God and exceeding abundant blessing that He speaks of here, this ought to be the legacy of the family of God. This ought to be what the church is for each of us. Now, sometimes the church falls short. Sometimes we as members fall short. But this is God's intent, that we would be a family in a very real way. So first, adoption means a new family in Christ. Second and finally, adoption means the rights of being a son of God well beyond the physical reality of what it means to be a family, our adoption is first and foremost a spiritual reality. A few moments ago, I read to you Romans 8.15 and then we jumped to verses 22 and 23, right? I'd like to read Romans 8.15 again and continue in verses 16 and 17. Paul says this, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. By virtue of your adoption into the family of God, you are made a child of God, and if a child, then an heir, notice what it says, a joint heir with Christ. 
Paul said this in 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. It is a faithful saying, for if we, we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. It's not just about receiving eternal life. It's about receiving the privilege of ruling and reigning with Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, around the throne they cried, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We are joint heirs with Christ, the Scriptures tell us. Heirs to His life. Heirs to His reign. Heirs to that glory. Now, we don't usurp the glory of Christ. We will receive those crowns and cast those crowns back at His feet. But those crowns are the crowns that we will receive. The glory that we will receive as joint heirs of Christ. Why? Not because we've done anything, but because one day we were adopted. We were adopted into the family of God. And because we are adopted, we have become a son of God, a joint heir with Christ. So as we consider these beautiful truths this evening, as we allow them to encourage and to bless us throughout the week, I leave you with this thought. Like any family, what one member does can reflect upon the whole. One of these days, perhaps, I'll have to have a conversation with one of my children and tell them that because you're a wickler, you need to act like a wickler. You need to... You need to... <laughs> my dad gives me a look like, oh, you don't want him acting like a wickler. My... my... That's why I don't invite you often. <laughs> now I've got to retrain my thought here. Uh, but one of these days, I might look at my children and say, you need to act like a wickler in a dignified sense. You, you, you need to live up to the wickler name. And in doing so, what I will probably, hopefully, be telling them is that as wicklers, we have a testimony. We, we, we are living above certain things. We are living in a way of respect, of diligence, of integrity, of work ethic. That is what it means. And you reflect the Wickler name. And so live like it. And I hope and trust that that won't be the full motivation. I trust and hope that their motivation will be Christ. But that same idea, are you living up to the name Christian? Christ? Now, I know that Christian has been dragged through the mud and everyone calls himself a Christian today and that term doesn't mean much in society, but it ought to mean something to you because what it means is little Christ. Are you living the name? You have been adopted into the family of God through Christ. You are God's child. How do you reflect on God? When people know you're a Christian, do you act in such a way that you are truly reflecting upon God and Christ what, what God ought to have? Are you living like a family, like, like your family name? Like a child of Christ? Throughout the centuries, the family of God has not always had a good name. What is our contribution to that name? One day, we will rule and reign with Christ. Are we living like princes? Are we living like heirs? Or are we living like the paupers and the servants? Are we resubmitting ourselves to the governors and tutors or are we living the, the freedom, the inheritance that we've been given in Christ? Let's close in prayer.